All right, so really, really glad to have you all here. Uh, just to tell you what we're going to be doing, we're going to, I don't want to take any, anything for granted. So we're going to start a bit about with the, the importance of preaching. We're going to look at expository preaching. Why should we do it? What is it? How do we do it? Getting to Christ. Um, well, sorry. There we go. All right, so a little bit temperamental. Um, and so we'll, and then if we have time, we'll, we're going to look at an example. I've got a whole bunch of notes as well. Um, so basically when we get to how do we do it, I've got a, a long detailed process that I mostly go through. I'm going to hand that out to you guys. So you've got a physical copy of that. Um, and the purpose of that is not to tell you this is what you have to do. Um, welcome. Uh, is not to tell you this is what you have to do and you have to follow all of these steps, but it's to rather give like a framework and a detailed process so you can kind of maybe realize where there may be some gaps in your process or if you don't have a very robust process to kind of take one to then take and make your own. So what I'm going to give you is just what I've picked up over the years, what I've consolidated, it works for me, um, and hopefully it'll be a framework that will help you think through that, um, but is meant to be cut and pasted. Um, So yeah, so... As we begin, I think I want to just take a bit of time to think about the importance of preaching. Why is, what is preaching and why is preaching so important? And I, I really think it's important to begin here. The reality is that we, we serve a God who speaks. And this is something that many of us take for granted. Um, but in our faith, this is one of the most distinguishing marks about God. One of the most interesting themes of the Bible is that there's the fact that God himself is a God who speaks. Um, it's God's words. God Uh, has power to speak, to command, to be heard and understood. And in the Bible, this is one of the things about God that sets him apart from all of the other deities and all of the other false gods that God's people attempted to worship. Is the fact that God speaks. God speaks in a clear way. We hear his voice. We know what he has to say. Um, And uh, and so this is obviously um, profound. In fact, in Isaiah 44, uh, in Isaiah... Oh, let me not go there. Um, In Isaiah 44... God, in a sense, is almost mocking his people um, for turning to gods that are made from wood. And, you know, th- there's that famous passage where God's mocking them, right? You, you take a piece of uh, wood, you, you break it into two, half of it you make firewood and you cook your food. The other half you turn into an idol and you sit down and you, you bow and you worship it. Um, but what God is getting to is, is the fact that these other false gods, they don't speak. They don't communicate. And this is what God says in Isaiah 44. I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. You hear that? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me. Since I appointed an ancient people, let them declare what is to come and what will happen. And then God says, fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declared? And you are witnesses. Is there a God beside me? There is no rock. I know not any. In other words, what, what God's doing is, one of the things that God is, is, is saying is one of the, the chief qualities about God that distinguishes Him from the other gods is the fact that God speaks. He proclaims. He's rescued His people. He's told them. And when God delivers His people from Egypt and wants to reveal Himself um, after He rescues them, he, uh, how does He show them who He is? He speaks, he speaks His Word. He gives them His law. And we obviously know that the way that we know God, right, is through His Word. And Satan's attack always from the beginning is against God's word. We think from the Garden of Eden, I mean, all the way through. Um, but amazingly, that even in Genesis 3, when the fall happens and Satan comes against God's word, causes Adam and Eve to doubt it, to disbelieve God, to doubt his word, to disobey his word. The amazing thing is, how does God respond to that? God comes in Genesis 3 and what does he do? God speaks again. He comes, he comes and He speaks. He comes and gives His Word. And embedded in that Word is, is a promise, is a hope um, that one day the seed of the woman will come and will crush the head of the serpent. So some things that are, I think, important for us to, to bear in mind, God's Word and our word and our words are very different. Um, sometimes we think about God's Word the way we think about our words. We, we think about the fact that, you know, hopefully my words are full of integrity. Hopefully I am going to say what's true about myself. Uh, and therefore, in theory, there shouldn't be a disconnect between me and my words. But that's uh, often, but we know that there can be a disconnect. With God, that's, that's not the case. God's word actually is the way that God accomplishes things. So in Genesis 1, God says, let there be light. And then what happens? God says, let there be light. Then he goes over to the light switch and hits switch. And then there was light. No, God says, 
let there be light, and there is light. Now, I don't know about you, that's not my experience when I speak, right? My words, they can influence things, they can ask people to do things, my words don't create things. But God's word is, God's word is entirely different uh, from us. Psalm 29 verse 5 shows us that what God's voice does, God himself does. So in, in that verse, it's like the voice of the Lord shakes the cedars. God, and then it talks about God himself shaking the forest. Like what God's voice, God's, what God's word does. And this is why to break God's word is to break relationship with God himself. So all of this, is, all the speaking of God is obviously culminated in God speaking a better word, a truer word, the incarnate word, Jesus, right? So when the New Testament describes Jesus as the divine logos or word, it's showing us that God's message, again, and God's person, who God is, are completely inseparable. And Paul makes this point um, incredibly powerful in 2 Corinthians 4. When, when talking about our conversion, right, if you know that, that passage, he says, The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel. Um, and so he talks about how the gospel is veiled, etc. But then he says, But... But God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, goes back to Genesis 1, has shone in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. In other words, when God speaks, like the way God converts, He speaks His word into our hearts with, with that word that regenerates and makes us alive. It's like Paul's contrasting that to creation. He, well, not contrasting. He's saying that it's similar to creation. Like as God's word comes, it brings life, it brings light. And this is what God's word is. And so... For all these reasons, um, this helps us understand the poignant symbolism at work when one man stands before a congregation to proclaim God's word. As Mark Davis says, the preaching monologue where one person speaks while others sit silently and listen is a picture of God's gracious self-disclosure. And of our salvation being as a gift that God speaks to us. In other words, the very essence of the gospel, the powerful proclamation of God's word, of good news, of who God is, of what God has done, of how he's saved from first to last, is a message that is heard by faith as God speaks it to us. So, speaking is, uh, preaching is speaking God's word and preaching is speaking on behalf of God. All right? So, this, th this, uh, this normally leads people who preach to have a reaction of mild panic, right? And I think a reaction of mild panic is a good reaction. I don't want to discourage that. Revelation 22 <laughs> says, if we take away any words, if we add any words, we're going to be cursed, all right? We know how false prophets are dealt with in Scripture. And this is why James 3 verse 1 says, we should not be quick to teach, right? We're going to be judged twice as harshly. Um, so this is real. Um, but once we've got over the panic of preaching, uh, thinking about God's word in this way it brings an immense confidence to us because it, it reminds us of the power of preaching, right? So it means that as we declare God's word, there's great power at work. We know God's word creates, Genesis 1 verse 3. God's word controls, Psalm 147 teaches us. God's word convicts. God's word actually performs his purposes. That famous passage in Isaiah 55 that many of us know. So the power of preaching is that we are declaring God's word that he promises God is watching, that God promises he's watching over his word to, to perform it. And there's a phrase that John Piper uh, uses that, that I love, where he says, The Spirit, the Holy Spirit flies in perfect formation with Christ exalting preaching. It's like as Christ exalting preaching is, is, is happening, the Spirit is flying in perfect formation to like press that into hearts. God's word and his Spirit are inseparable. And the Spirit is taking this living Word of God and, and pressing and making it alive to us, opening the eyes of our hearts. And so we, we know there's this immense confidence we have. Um, when we preach God's Word, we're inviting the Spirit to do the work that only the Spirit can do. So one of my favorite uh, quotes from the Reformation, Martin Luther, uh, was when uh, the hero of the, the Reformation, Luther, found himself in hiding. He was kind of like a bit of an exile. And the people were, were kind of concerned about him because this is Martin Luther, right? The, the, the Reformation is kind of happening and now he's kind of, you know, burrowed away. And they are kind of thinking, what's going to happen? And, um, uh, but Luther himself wasn't concerned about this at all because the, the formal principle of the Reformation, or what was at the bottom of the Reformation was this idea of sola scriptura. And, and Luther realized that, that just a simple return to Scripture 
was what was unleashing all this chaos. It wasn't dependent upon him. And uh, listen to Luther commenting at the time. He says, I will constrain no man by force, for faith must come freely without compulsion. Take myself as an example. I opposed indulgences and all the papers, but never with force. I simply taught, preached, and wrote God's word. Otherwise, I did nothing. And while I slept or drank Wittenberg beer with my friends, Philip and Amsdorf, the word so greatly weakened the papacy that no emperor ever inflicted such losses upon it. I did nothing. The word did everything. Isn't that a great, isn't that a great quote? So Luther's there in this kind of exile. He's not worried. Why? The Bible's there. It's like the word of God is, 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 is going forth. And he says, hey, I may as well sit back and have a beer because, you know, the Bible is in the hands of these people. So, therefore, preaching is really central in the life of, of, uh, of any church. So, the panic of preaching, the power of preaching, the privilege of preaching. Um, pr- preaching is an incredible privilege. To be able to stand before God's people, declares words to them, um, is one of the most amazing and astounding privileges. So, some, some may know that um, we, uh, I'm from Singapore, and we planted our church eight and a half years ago. And uh, our story is pretty unique. We landed in Singapore in the September of 2008, 30th of November, we had our first public service. We didn't know anyone in Singapore. So it was a complete parachute plant. And less than th- uh, three months later, we had our first public worship service. And by the 3rd of September, the next year, we had to go to multiple services um, in a venue that has like 140 seats. So within, within like a year of landing in Singapore, we had about 150 people in the church. And it just kind of kept on going from there. It was, it was exhilarating. It was, uh, I mean, I, I don't think I'll, it, well, maybe I will, I trust I will experience um, something like that again. Um, it was a very, very exciting time, but I want to tell you that what is an even better feeling than that is having preached in the same church for like eight years and seeing people that have just like sat under the preaching of the word for five, six, seven years, no drama. No great shakes, but you just see their lives are completely different. Their, their, their theology is different. They love God. They go through adversity. They go through trials. They go through tragedies. They've got a deep faith in God. They, they love Jesus. That, I'm telling you, it's way more rewarding. It's more exciting than any of the external stuff. And that is, that is the privilege of preaching. So, expository preaching. What, what is this? Um, and why should we... Why should we do this? So the goal of preaching um, for me is to present the entire counsel of God to the people of God in order that we can present the mature in Christ. You can make up your own definition. That's my rough definition, right? We, what we want to do is we want to present the entire counsel of God um, for, so that people can be presented mature in Christ. That's what I'm trying to do. Uh, and because every part of Scripture points to or is resolved in Christ, um, all of preaching reveals and urges faith in Christ's work. So if this is the goal, this is, and I'm sure you'll have slight kind of variations of this, but if this is roughly the goal, what, is, what are some of the dangers that we face in preaching? How can we, yeah, let me just throw, throw that out. What are, what are some of the ways that we cannot do this when we're preaching week after week? Or what are some of the dangers that you are maybe are prone to fall into? Leave Christ out. All right. Yes. Big danger. Absolutely. You just okay. Absolutely. I mean, to me, th- that's one of the biggest blessings of preaching through books of the Bible. Apart from just not having to panic every Monday morning. What on earth am I going to preach next Sunday? All right. And having to like go through this three-day process of trying to figure out what my text is going to be. I finished preaching at 5.30 on a Sunday night and I know my next text is there. But I'm going through the Bible, right? It's like the, the church is not going to hear my favorite topics um, every Sunday. Great. What else? What if is you don't do this, you've also got the added uh, stress of needing to come up with Absolutely. Yeah. Even if you don't have hobby horses per se, it just adds extra work. That's right, yeah. When I was in, in the church previously and we, we didn't do this and I, I was asked to preach, Sometimes, like still on Saturday morning, I'm like, should I do this passage or this passage? It's like, this one feels a bit more alive, you know. Um, man, it's like adding a lot of gray hair. That I, Sorry, on the flip side is that it makes you preach stuff you wouldn't preach. Okay, that's my other point, right, is that 
man, when you're preaching through books of the Bible and you get to that one tough passage, either something I don't want to really preach or it's going to be really tough, or it's something that I feel like the church really needs, but if it's like on money, say, they're like, oh, Simon's preaching on money again. No, I'm like, hey, we've been preaching through 2 Corinthians. We're in chapter 8, and here we go. This is God's Word, you know. So, yeah, I mean, all, all of those reasons. You don't come across as being like mega clever. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. There's no manipulation. It's not like Simon always preaches on this or, you know, why do we do a series on this every single year? Um, yeah, God's, God's word really is speaking, right? All right. So um, I believe, we, many of us believe that the best way to accomplish this goal and avoid these dangers is through preaching through books of the Bible in an expository way. So let me, let me just say a few things about this, right? We believe, I believe, that regular preaching in a church should be expository in nature. Meaning, the sermon's based upon a passage in which the main point of the passage is the main point of the sermon. We'll get to this in a moment. And the sermon helps God's people see how His Word shapes their lives. So just to clarify, this doesn't mean that like topical preaching is unbiblical, is ungodly, shouldn't happen. Um, I think there really is time and place for that. We do that in our church. We just did a, a, a series in February on sexual ethics where we basically did one sermon on sex and marriage, one sermon on homosexuality, and the next sermon on transgender issues. And that was not an expository series, right? Um, we, so in our church, I'd probably say 80% of what we do is just working through books of the Bible. We're busy preaching through Isaiah at the moment. It's a long book. Can't tackle the whole thing in one shot because people, I mean, in our context, it's just too long. That's just what I personally feel. So we kind of broke it up into chunks. We did chapter 1 to 12. Then we came back and did 13 to 35. Now we've just finished 36 to 39. And uh, starting in September or so, we'll go from 40 to 55. And then next year we'll do 56 to 66. So it's going to end up taking us like two years to get through. But it's broken up with various series. So we just finished Isaiah um, previously. Now June, July, we're actually doing a series on prayer. So it seems like it's a topical series, but we're doing seven weeks on prayer. But every sermon is an exposition of a prayer in the Old or the New Testament. So Nehemiah chapter 1, Acts chapter 4, etc., etc. So, so in other words, sometimes we, we will do a series that seems more topical, but yet each sermon will be um, expositional. That's what we mostly do. We're actually going to do another one like that this year called The Church's Family. But again, it's like about six weeks. It's just expositions. Um, and but then from time to time we'll do a, a series uh, where it's like a topical sermon actually where we're obviously still going to scripture but we're not just expounding one text and so our series on sexual ethics was like that but honestly if that's like one or two sermons a year on average um, that's a lot so we try and stay away from that but sometimes it's just needed that's just what we have to do so I just want to want to be clear um, that I'm trying to share why we do what we do, how we think about it, but we're not trying to be legalistic about this. Um, there are different things in our churches that come up that just we have to deal things in various ways. All right, so let me maybe mention my next main point, which is what exactly is expository preaching, and then we'll, uh, and we'll maybe just take a little break and see if there's any engagement. Then we'll jump into how do we go about doing this. All right, so expository preaching, what is it? I've given you a definition here. Expository sermon is one in which the main point of the text is the main point of the sermon and whose structure and content is derived from the biblical text itself, aiming for the hearers to know God rightly, turn from their sin, trust in Christ, and bear the fruit of their spirit in their lives. That's my working definition. So there's three things that are going on here. We can send out these slides. So uh, three main things, right? Number one, the point of the text is the point of the sermon. So you've, you've got your text. You're going to have to do all the hard work to figure out what the heck is this passage about? What does it mean in its context? Why was this written? Why is this given to the church? What did it mean for them? What does it mean for us? And this is the tough thing, right? You know, many people say, look, expository preaching is great. We want to do that. It sounds biblical. The problem, though, is that often as preachers, when we stand up to preach, we know what we want to say. We know what we think the church needs to hear. Um, and then we try and find a text to say what we want to say, um, which is very dangerous, actually. Um, or we just look at a text and we're like, oh, I really like that little idea there or that little word or that little theme. And then we're like, I'm going to make that my hobby horse and I'm going to just milk those three words for all it's worth. Um, but that's not what expository preaching is. 
suppose what we're preaching is you have your text the main point of the text is the main point of the sermon secondly uh, the structure of the text shapes the sermon. So, sorry, let me just go back to this first one here. Again, this is how we can ensure that we are preaching the full counsel of God. Because it's not sufficient to say just that we are using the Bible in preaching. Because we all know you can use the Bible to say whatever you want to say, right? I mean, nearly every cult uses the Bible, right? So, so just saying that we preach from the Bible or we use the Bible is not sufficient. Just to say that we even use a text or cite text in our sermons is not sufficient. Cults do all that same thing. What is biblical Christianity? It's like, no, God speaks to us. How does God speak? He has spoken in His Word. The main point of that passage is the main point of the sermon. Secondly, the structure of the text shapes the sermon. Now, this one, I think, uh, out of the three points I'm going to make, is a little bit harder to apply. And I think this is probably the, the, the kind of grayest one, right? I think, um, without wanting to go into another topic here, one of the other benefits of expository preaching is that you are hopefully helping your people um, realize that the Bible is understandable, the Bible speaks to them. If you're doing expository preaching well, you you will notice, you will help your people actually learn how to read the Bible. Now, there are they are different they, they are preachers that do this in different ways right so i'll if i look at two different extremes i, I don't know how anytime you use examples you run risks right i'll use piper and keller as examples they're both to expository preaching but they have very different approaches piper by and large is going to take you through that text man you're going to like read every word he's showing you the connection he's like don't you see this word it's like therefore and that means this and you realize this and he's like you feel like you're in this class and then He's like, you know, making it come alive and then he just like whacks you with that main point. But you are like in that text. Now, I think your context uh, does play a role in exactly which approach do you want to have. The advantage of Piper's pr- approach is that his people are learning how to read the Bible. They are getting confidence in the Bible. They are realizing, oh, th- that passage is really saying that. And it's not saying this because he's just showed me and he's proved it to me. Um, and it's giving your people a sense like, yeah, God speaks, His word is true. Keller, on the other hand, so Piper's approach is like, I'm going to do all my hard work behind in the kitchen. Then I'm going to, like in my sermon, I'm going to bring some of the dirty pots out. I'm going to kind of show you how I got there and why I believe this too. So people are like being taken on the journey. Keller doesn't do that at all. Keller's like, he's, I mean, first he's an absolute genius. Um, I mean, I've often listened to Keller's sermons and I thought, it seems like he's floating above the text. I don't think that's really what the passage is saying. How did he even get that from there? And the sermon's beautiful. It moves the heart. to like, oh, Jesus is amazing. But I'm like, I don't quite see the connection between that and the passage. And I'll confess to you, I've judged Keller a few times thinking, he's like not really getting to the main point of the passage. And then later on, when something's happened and I've studied that passage, I'm like, you know what? He was right. He's like, he, it's like I, I totally didn't see it, but that's exactly what it's saying. The problem with that, though, in my view, is that he's not helping his people understand where it comes from in the text as much um, and not giving as much kind of confidence. And he's got, I mean, he's a genius. He's got reasons for that. Um, he's in New York City, etc. So I'm just saying, you, there are different approaches, but your main point must come from that text. The structure of the text shaping the sermon is that I guess what you want to help people see is that you haven't just like lifted some idea from this passage, but it's like what Paul's arguing for if it's an epistle or what the psalmist is wrestling with or what, the, you know, what Moses wrote in Genesis chapter 3 is. Um, is uh, like the, the way that it's written is, 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 is partially how we're supposed to understand this um, as well. So that doesn't mean that your three points or four points or five points or one point, whatever of your sermon has to follow the exact order and flow. I'd say my preaching, most of the time it does. 80% of the time, it's in a pretty logical way. People can follow it pretty clearly. Sometimes I have to do some gymnastics, and that's what we'll get to a little bit later in terms of the art and science um, of prep. And then finally, the text points to the work of Christ. Um, preachers must endeavor to apply, the, uh, to apply the passage to Christ. Um, let me, I just want to see where we're at on time. You know what, I'm going to, I was going to get to Christ a little bit later, but I want to mention this now briefly, and then we're going to look at how we do this. So I just want to take a moment to talk about getting to Christ in our sermons. We know that um, all of Scripture points to Christ. 
I hope I don't have to explain that in too much detail here. Luke 24, every part of, of the Bible is connected to Christ in some way. Christ is the resolution of every problem. Um, every theme finds its resolution, its fulfillment in Him. Everything's pointing toward Him. And as John 5, with Jesus interacts with the Pharisees, shows us that it's very possible to understand the Bible technically or in a lot of detail and fail to see how it points to Jesus. And when that happens, we essentially are leaving people with moralism and we're telling people that the Bible is no longer good news about what God's done to save us and redeem us, but it's now about what we have to do to earn God's favor or to fix our own lives. And, you know, I spent a long, I spent many years of my life preaching like this. And it's tragic to think that I can stand behind a pulpit and, and my main message is trying to give people good advice from the Bible. And it's full of, the Bible's full of good advice. But the message of the Bible is not what we have to do to save ourselves. It's what Christ has done. And preaching Christ from every text of the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, it is hard work. It is tough. It sounds beautiful at first because you're like, hey, every passage is about Jesus. Um, but then after six months, you realize every one of your sermons sound exactly the same. Um, and so this, this is one of the real hard, um, this is one of the most difficult things about preaching actually is, 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 is if you haven't preached like this, to train yourself, to, to recognize Christ in the text. How do you get there? Um, how do you resolve the problem of the text through Christ? How does your passage lead you to do that? Um, but what I, what I can say is that once you've been doing it for a long time, like five years or seven years, you do, it does start to become natural. And you do start to see it and you do, you do start to realize, but it, it, it takes a lot of work. And I'll, I'll give us uh, some tips for doing that. But um, I'm changing. So let me just come back to some of these slides. Sorry, I've changed my order slightly. So getting to Christ, we have obviously one story of the Bible. The Bible's full of millions of stories. But there's one main story of the Bible, right? Creation, fall, redemption, uh, restoration, consummation. That is the one big story of the Bible. And that finds its climax in Christ himself. And therefore, every little story is ultimately somehow pointing to Christ. So uh, Spurgeon, um, so, sorry, so let me, let me mention this. Many, many times we, we have been trained to, to think about the Bible um, from a systematic theological point of view. It's like, what is... The Bible teaches about this topic, sex, or what does it teach about holiness, or, or about sin, or about church, or I mean, all these topics, right? And that's what good systematic theologies do. They, they basically sum up what is the overall teaching of the Bible about this one point. It's a valid and a very important way to do theology. Very, very important. But it's not the only way. Um, we also have to understand the redemptive historical way, uh, or way of understanding the Bible, biblical theology, which is basically what is the story of the Bible from beginning to end. It's one story, right? It finds its resolution in Christ. And we have to, for me, I had to learn how to rethink how I read and thought through the Bible through the lens of the redemptive historical method. Why, you know, so we think about the theme, say, of God's presence. It's like, well, God's with his people in the Garden of Eden. Sin enters the world. They're out of God's presence. But God comes to dwell with his people in uh Think about Exodus. He comes in his pillar fire cloud by day. There's the tabernacle leads to the temple. I mean, this is these themes again and again, right? But then finally, where does it lead to? Well, Jesus. He's John chapter one verse one. The word of the word became flesh, came and tabernacled among us. Like all those themes, all that about God's presence. That's resolved in Jesus, um, who now at Pentecost has poured out a spirit into us and abides in us through his spirit. But that's just one example, right? So if you're preaching on some passage from Exodus on the temple, the tabernacle, the instructions. Yeah, you're going to preach about that. There are going to be things that you're going to have to say about that. But that sermon is not complete until you show how Christ has come to be the embodiment of God's presence and brings us into His presence through His death and resurrection, etc. So, in other words, Christ... Um, and, yeah, so one of my favorite quotes on this is Spurgeon. He says, Will you tell me why you think it was a poor sermon? Because, he said, there was no Christ in it. Well, said the young man, Christ was not in the text. We are not to be preaching Christ always. We must preach what is in the text. So the old man said, Don't you know, young man, that from every town and every village and every little hamlet in England, wherever it may be, there is a road to London? Yes, said the young man. Ah, said the old divine. And so from every text in Scripture, there is a road to the metropolis of the Scriptures that is Christ. Now, my dear brother, your business, and when you get to a text, is to say, Now what is the road to Christ? 
and then preach a sermon running along the road toward the great metropolis, Christ. We're not preaching the Bible unless we get to Christ as the answer to the problem of our text. So our text is always raising some kind of an issue, some kind of a problem, right? We'll get to that in our process in a moment. It's what Brian Chappell calls the, the, the fallen condition focus. Every text is helping us realize, oh my goodness, it's, I'm realizing I'm a sinner. There's something that I failed or I'm failing to do. And Christ has to be the, the resolution to that problem and your text has to show it. Um, and that's why preaching is not for the faint-hearted. So, but if we aren't doing this, we're preaching moralism, which is not the gospel. Um, we, have to, we have to, I mean, I've got some friends that talk about the synagogue text, uh, test, right? It's like if your, if your sermon could be preached in a synagogue, um, it's, I mean, it may be wonderful. And, and you, you may have explained some things very wonderfully, but it's, it's not preaching. You, you have not exalted Christ and shown what the gospel, what, what, who God is and what God has done for us. So we have to preach so that people rest in Christ. So people are moved to worship Christ. Um, it's, it's only when the, the heart is moved to worship Him that our preaching has really gone home. So if we think about like the thing that, okay, what is the thing that God wants from us most? It's not a trick question. What does God want, what is, what does God want from us most? What is the greatest command? All right, we should love the Lord our God. That's what God wants. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I just have to phrase it in a, in a slightly more clear biblical way. What God wants is for us to love Him, right? Um, this is the greatest command. And the f- the, that's the greatest command. The whole law is summed up in that. If we think about the Ten Commandments, we should have no other gods before Him. Uh, it's an s- Old Testament way of saying that same thing, right? We... We would have no one before God. We were to know Him and to love Him and, and, and to cherish Him. And this is, this is a heart matter. Um, as Martin Luther says, you never break any of the Ten Commandments without first having broken the first commandment. There is no commandment that you, can, you, you can't steal or covet or dishonor your mother or father. You can't do any of those things without having first broken the, the first commandment to, to, to have no other gods before Him. It's because we want something more than God that we, we steal or we covet or we dishonor our parents. So, in other words, yeah, as Jesus summed up, that it really is true. We must love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, and strength. But the question is, how do we do that? Why do we love God? There's a Bible verse that gives you the answer to this question. Why do we love Him? We love Him because? Much quicker, guys. We're making progress. Thanks, Pete Cropman, for, uh, for leading us into the truth there. Okay, we, we love Him because He first loved us. So, in other words, uh, like, true true. True Christian love is always a responsive love. And how did He first love us? Well, He loved us through Christ. It's, it's only as, as the, the person and the work of Christ is applied to our hearts in this particular issue, issue of sin that our text is dealing with, that our hearts are melted, as, as, as Keller will say, away from sin to, to trust Christ and to treasure Him. We can motivate change of behavior by don't steal because you'll get caught and you'll get busted and no one likes being with stealers or you know, don't like because you'll, you'll, you'll get caught. Well, I mean, I remember when I, I listened to Keller teaching this about 12 years ago and it just about blew my mind where he spoke about how many of us as preachers, we are motivating our children and people in our church to, to stop sinning through sin. So we say to our kids, you know, don't lie because if you get caught lying, you'll be revealed as a liar and then no one will like you. Um, and God sees everything, so God's going to catch you one day as well. And all those ideas are, are biblical ideas, right? It, like, is it true that God sees everything? Is it true that people don't like lies? Is it true that whatever's whispered will get you know, shouted from the rooftops? Is everything going to be exposed? Are those things all true? They are. But if your congregation or your church or your children are primarily motivated to not lie because they're going to get busted or caught, what you're appealing to is pride in them, their sense of self the, the sense of how they can live in a way that pleases others or their own good reputation. You, you're appealing to their pride to get them to not lie. You, in other words, as Keller says, you are stirring up sin in their hearts. A, 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 a secret, unseen sin to prevent them from doing an external, visible sin. But the, the, the issue in the heart has not been dealt with. Man, I realized... 
I'm a good preacher at getting external conformity. But that's not the gospel. The gospel is like Christ loved you even while you were a sinner. And that actually you can tell the truth even if it makes you look terrible to everyone around you because your, your life, your reputation is not built upon your own efforts or even how your reputation to other people but the fact that though you were a sinner Christ loved you and gave himself for you and you are now reconciled as God's child and only when you believe that are you actually liberated now to no longer lie to actually tell the truth to not to not lie to your boss when he asks you why you haven't done that work or that's the only thing that will actually from the heart as Paul says in Romans 1 the obedience from the heart the obedience of faith actually leads you to live in an obedience that's not motivated by pride or any other sin, but the obedience of faith, of, of faith in Christ. And this is why we have to preach Christ. We have to move, the, our sermons have to move people's hearts to see and rejoice and rest in Christ and worship Him so that the, we have this obedience now of the new covenant that springs from the heart. So, um, so a couple of ways that we can do this poorly. Number one, tacking Christ onto the end. Right then, oh, by the way, you know, Jesus loves you. God loves you. If you've sinned, he'll forgive you. Um, that's the amateur way of trying to tack Christ on the end. Okay? No, rather you want to show that your text is, is showing that apart from Christ, you cannot obey this text. Um, and that Christ does lead you there. And then the other way is by allegorizing, right? Where we just find like any connection in the text. So a good example of this would be the scarlet thread of Rahab, right? The scarlet thread. It's like, this was a scarlet thread. That's what saved her. She put the scarlet cord. It's like, that must be talking about the blood of Christ. Jesus' blood is red. Well, I mean, it's true. Jesus' blood is red. That cord happened to be red, but that's, that's not a good connection. I heard someone the other day saying, you know, if you go and like study the book of Numbers and you see how God commanded all the camps to be laid out, if you're going to look from an aerial point of view, it forms a cross. It's crazy. It's like, there's the gospel. No, 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 it's not that. It's not that. What, you, what we need to do is we have to isolate the, the fallen condition focus in our text and then show how Christ sets us free from that. So uh, there are a couple of ways that we do this. Theme resolution. With uh, I don't actually have too much time to do this in a lot of detail, but there's, there's four main ways, right? Story completion, there's only one true hero. Symbol fulfillment like typology. I tell you what, what we're going to do because of time, uh, I am going to go back to what I really want to say, and then if we've got, a few, if we've got some, some minutes at the end, we'll come back to that. I can send out these notes as well. All right, so let's, um, let's, let's talk. I'm going to talk briefly about this process that I have. Um, so I basically break, break, break my preaching down into three parts. Um, number one, understanding the text. Number two, writing the sermon. Number three, preparing to preach. Again, this is not prescriptive. The, the general flow, I think, you must follow. Um, but I'm going to break it down into a lot of points so that we can see um, how this works. So let me, maybe we can hand some of these out. I've given you pretty detailed notes here. So I know that when I began this, I was talking a lot about um, preaching on Sundays, and I know that's the main, uh, the, the main context that I, I would assume many of us do this, but these principles apply for any... Are we good? All right, so uh, I've spoken about text, sermon, and preparing to preach. So, I mean, I just put there my own personal kind of goal. What am I aiming to do? Proclaim Christ each week in 40 minutes. By being faithful to the text, moving hearts to trust Christ, and helping people see how trusting Christ plays out in their daily lives. So I just want to be clear. I know I've really emphasized the word and the text and getting the text right, etc. That's important. Expository preaching is not enough in a sense. We, it's like that's a skeleton. We, we have to do that. If we aren't doing that, it's just not going to be a, a proper sermon. But from there, we have, we have, we've got to pray. We've got to think how we're going to apply this. How does this connect to people's lives? I mean, we have to make it come alive. So I know there can be expository preaching done in a way that just puts everyone to sleep. 
and I'm sure that is like a, a sin that you are not allowed to do that. Um, so, uh, when we when I think about um, preparing to preach, the first part is understanding the text. If I don't understand the text, whatever I'm going to say is going to be my own good ideas. It's not. It, it, some of it could be helpful if I have good kind of general Bible knowledge. I could give good advice, but I'm not. I'm not preaching in an expository way. So. What I'm first going to do, read over the text a whole bunch of times, prayerfully familiar my, uh, familiarize myself. I normally actually like to print out my text on like an like a A4 sheet of paper, just put it in the middle, like center, get my assistant to help me do that for every text that I've got coming up. And I just sit there, I'm reading through it, I'm praying through it, I'm scribbling, I'm making notes. I'm like, oh, this word came up, a hang of a lot, or there's a therefore. And I'm just trying to like, before I look at any notes, or just trying to figure out what on earth is going on here. Make brief notes on a page, etc. Then I'm going to try to figure out, you know, context and content. So where does this sit in the letter, in the, in, in the gospel? Determine the genre, the immediate context, um, the broader context, uh, and then the text itself, right? I'm going to begin to figure out what's the basic meaning of this, right? What is the author's point? Why on earth was this written? Great tools for that, figuring out the grammatical indicators, words like for, but, and order that, so that, because, since, etc. See the logical flow. Why does, why, why does he say that first? The, the, the key here is just asking a million questions. Why is it like that? Why did he say this? Surely I would have said that. Um, if I would have said that, then why did like God inspire him by the Spirit to say it like this? And you, you're trying to get inside the author's head as much as you can um, and figure out. You're going to look for contrast, comparisons, repetition of words. Um, and then think, how does this text fit in with the broader storyline of the Bible? And then from there, I'm going to, at a very rough level, begin to put together an exegetical... Oh, sorry. Um, so in, under the second point, which is pretty... Some people may say this is too early, but for me, this is what I do. Under this context and content, that's where I'm going to start to look at commentaries. I'm going to, like, if there are things I'm not sure, you know, I first had a look at myself. I've tried to figure it out a little bit, so I'm not just jumping straight to everyone. Then I'm going to try and read some commentators. What are they saying? They're going to help me see things in the text I just haven't understood. Then I'm going to put together an exegetical outline. So typically in preaching, you've got two outlines. You've got your exegetical outline and your homiletical outline. Those are just big fancy words. Exegetical is just how is, how is this text written? What's an outline? First he said this, then he said this. This is a subclause here. Just going to outline the text and then later on you're going to have your preaching outline which is like what's your sermon outline or three points or whatever those can sometimes overlap but they don't have to we'll see that later um, but you, you want to understand you want to try and get your head in that text as much as possible another question i'm asking is what is the sin in this passage that's brian chapel's fallen condition focus and how do you get to and how how does how does this passage get to christ so what's the fallen condition focus what is this revealing if it's Hezekiah's sin, it's Hezekiah's failure to trust God, say, I'm, I'm identifying. Okay, the main thing in this passage is this guy does not trust God. That's his sin. So I realize, okay, that's the, that's the issue here. And now I'm thinking, okay, how is this going to connect to Christ? How does, how does Christ um, help me resolve that? I'm kind of bearing that in my mind. So this is all, this is all the, the um, I would say point two under part one, t context and content, I'm spending a lot of time doing that, just figuring out the text and making a lot of notes. Um, so if you have a look at the end of these notes that I've given, I've basically given you, and it's just an example of notes that I'll make in my sermon prep process. So this is a sermon I preached a couple of weeks ago, Isaiah 37, 21 to 38. I'm basically writing down, what's the context? What's the context of the passage in Scripture? Like, how does this connect to the Bible storyline? I've got an exegetical outline there. Then I've just made my content. It's just bullet points, right? It's just observations I've made. It's, it's messy. Um, things I've read in commentaries. It's not ordered. And seriously, if you see anything weird or heretical in these notes, please ignore it. I didn't like airbrush this for this. I'm just, my own prep process, I'm sure if I looked at your prep process, it'd be messy as well, right? I just happened to type it out. This is messy. It's ugly. It, it just looks neat because it's all typed out. Um, and I just do that so that I can then, if I'm preaching on this later on, I can go back to it. Then you'll see at the bottom of that, that page after content is sin and Christ. So I'm saying, what is sin here? Sin here is living without humble trust in God. Sin is also in the passage mocking and defying the sovereign God, not trusting in God, but in our own strength. That's what the Assyrians are doing. And in our own alliances, that's what Hezekiah is doing. Um, and salvation, I'm just writing down notes. Like, how do I see Christ here? God looks for people that, are, that will trust in Him. 
As we see here, hardly anyone does that perfectly. Not even Hezekiah. Two kings says he's one, there was no king like him after all the kings after Hezekiah. And yet this guy, who was one of the best, even he doesn't even have faith in God. He's going to lead the nation into disaster. How does this get resolved? Yet God has made promises to Israel that a true king will rule forever and ever. Because of his faithfulness to those promises, God sends the angel of the Lord to destroy his enemies with a miracle. God acting perverse to loss to rescue his people from death by miracle. Who does he save by? Then we get to the angel of the Lord. Commentators in this uh, Isaiah 37, this is a divine figure distinct from the Father, yet one with the Father who condescends. Hmm, who does that sound like? Well, the theologians will say this is a Christophany. It's a little, slightly unclear. There's probably four places a figure appears. Divine, spoken of as being God, yet distinct from the Father, comes down. It's a Christophany. This is part of Christ. So now we're gonna. So now, now I know. Like God sends this angel of the Lord to come and destroy the Assyrians in one shot overnight. God's people go to sleep one night. They're under the Rabshakeh. They're getting intimidated by the Assyrians. They wake up in the morning. It's done. It's delivered. They've been rescued. Well, how does this get to Christ? Right. What's the point of the sermon? Not. We're going to have to somehow muster up our own faith. No, God, this is how God rescues. This is how God delivers. Even the best that can't rescue themselves, they're, they're, they're dead in their own lack of faith and sin, but Christ comes, defeats our enemies. Our enemies are not all our enemies around us. It's, it's sin that's got us in prison, our own lack of faith, and God's going to deal with it in one shot as He comes down, one who is divine, yet distinct from the Father, condescends to save and rescue. So our faith can be in Him. So I'm going to... Um, I'm going to figure out sin in Christ. And in the early stages, this is all very rough. I'm going to summarize the passage. I'm going to give a one thesis, one sentence thesis. So you can see that at the end of my notes there. I've got summary of the passage. I've got a sermon thesis statement and an outline um, that I begin to put together. All right, so that's my first part. In theory, if I could like prepare, so, when I'm in my like perfect groove, I'll prepare two or three sermons at a time. So on a Tuesday... I'll do my like part one of one text and my part two of another text and like have a break after lunch and work on something else. It just gives me time. I've got a week to kind of think about, think about it before I come back to it again. But in reality, basically I got into a rhythm in the last eight years where I did that once for about six months and it was amazing. But most of the time, it's not like that. You just wake up on Monday morning and you're like, oh boy, let's go again. Got to preach again. That's understanding the text. So, so you'll notice here, I haven't thought too much about the sermon yet. I, I, I haven't yet figured out, like, how am I going to preach this? One of the things about preaching is preaching is both science and art. Preaching is, we have to get this in our heads. It is science. There are cold, hard laws of nature, laws of the Bible we cannot break. Um, and we have to know those um, in order to, to be able to preach properly. But science is not enough, right? We've all heard some of like the most brilliant theological professors standing up and it's like they get that passage so right and you just you don't even get to hear they got to christ because you're just sleeping through halfway through it right you've got to make that passage sing you've got to apply it you've got to you've got to preach it in a way that makes it come alive to people and you've got to show the relevance of it to their lives and that's the art part so that's part two right preparing the sermon i'm going to now pray through this again now that i've like figured it out i'm like okay now i realize okay the main point of this passage is like about faith in god it's going to get resolved in christ how does this apply to my own heart? Where am I like failing to trust Jesus? How does this encourage me? Honestly, as a preacher, I don't do this enough. This is what makes your preaching fairly wooden. I'm just a lecturer. I'm telling people. But when you stand up and you've like repented yourself after being convicted by this passage, you've got to Jesus yourself. Oh man, and people are like, I wanna, I, it, it moves people's hearts. So how does that apply to my own heart? How does it apply to the church? Um, I write up the big idea, thesis statement. Then I'm going to decide my approach. So look, you'll notice here, this is, again, this is very detailed, right? I'm not expecting you all to have these like 18 steps every time you prepare, but I'm, I'm like giving you it all in a, in a broad framework so you can realize, oh, I'm kind of skipping out this part which is maybe hindering me. So you can take this, customize it, and do whatever you want. So I'm going to decide the approach. Is it deductive? Like I'm going to tell the thesis up front and then argue it afterwards, or inductive, I'm like going to begin with a question and like pose it. That's kind of how I tend to preach, like you know, raise some question in my introduction um, that's like just directly connected to people's lives. You're struggling with this, or how do you deal with hardship, adversity? I mean, just some issue that I just know is live in the congregation. I'm getting people to think, yeah, how does the gospel connect to that? Or how do I deal with this? And then I'm like, that brings us to our pastors today and give the context and 
And then, uh, so now people are like leaning in. They're like, yeah, actually, like this passage, we just had like a scripture reader read these like 20 verses from Isaiah. It sounded as boring as anything. Um, I mean, that's, I'm sure many people in my church think when we do scripture reading. But when I do my, doing my intro, I'm like, I'm beginning with like some real issue in the life of the church. So they're like, oh, this passage, I was actually going to speak to that. Now, now they're beginning to listen in, right? If I, if I just begin like, I'm going to teach you all about three points about this, this, and this. They're like, oh, I heard this before. So people are now leaning in. Um, then, uh, so I'm decide my approach, sermon outline. So just create a shaft of the sermon, bare bone structure, working out the entire argument. How can I change? So I'm going to try and give my three points. Where, where am I going to get to Christ? What are some of my subpoints? Flesh out some of the subpoints, and then think about application. How does this apply to our church? How does this apply? How does that apply? That's all fairly straightforward. And then the final part is I'm going to come. I'm going to write my conclusion and then introduction. Or never write, your, never write your introduction too early on in the sermon process, right? I, man, it's just like the worst thing you can do. And I'm still always tempted to do that. I want to have like a nice intro. But then like the way that I phrase the intro, what hap- if you write your intro too early, the intro wags the rest of the sermon. You're like, oh, and I have to answer this question because I raised this in the intro. No. What's the main point of the text? How are you going to argue the sermon? Like, what are you preaching? And then right at the end, it's like, okay, how do I introduce this in a way that's going to connect this to people? That's just my personal advice because I've many times done my intro too early and ended up changing my, like every time I tweak my intro, my whole sermon outline changes. Well, the, the problem is I'm letting the, the intro wag the, the, uh, the outline of the sermon. Then I'm going to insert illustrations. Uh, I'm going to try and do this in a way that, you know, that tap the five senses. Spurgeon says you should turn the ear into an eye. If, I mean, Spurgeon's just the genius at this, right? Um, it's like the way that he uses illustrations. You just, you're moved. And man, if we could preach like that guy, it would be amazing. He, he, Spurgeon didn't always get it right. But, um, you know, Spurgeon went preached a whole sermon on the word never, I think, in, the, in Hebrew somewhere. But in the original Greek, it's not even there. And he preaches his entire sermon on it. So even, <laughs> even Spurgeon get it wrong. But he was so genius, I'm sure many people were converted and uh, the church was built up. Because he got to Jesus somehow, even if it was wrong. And actually, in some ways, I think that's... that's yeah, through the dirt road. Yeah, he had to kind of go, he had to go through the bush, but he got there at the end. Um, inserted, inserted illustrations. Um, yeah. So I mean, there's there's some points and notes there. I don't want to spend too much time on that. Apply to non-Christians. So I'm always at some point. I'm just thinking, okay, who are the non-Christians here? How do I how do I preach to them? So I'm sure many of you have heard this because I'm sure Kel is a huge influence here. But something I heard him say just before we planted our church was so helpful where he said, if you want to have non-Christians in your church, preach as though they are there. Even if they aren't. If you've got 20 people in your room and you know every one of them has been a Christian for 10 years, preach to the non-Christian. That doesn't mean your whole sermon, but you have moments. You're like, hey, maybe you're here today and you have been exploring the faith or you've been thinking about Christianity. Or maybe, you know, you are wondering about this question because you're like, how could God send? How do you think, how could like a good God send people to hell? You, ha- you should always try and include one or two little what Keller calls apologetic sidebars in. Because when people in your church, even if all 50 people are all Christians, when they hear you say that, they're like, oh man, I wish my colleague had heard that sermon because that's exactly what they were talking to me about. And people start bringing those people to church. So you've got to preach for who you want to see there, not just who is in the room. So really encourage you to just go through your sermon at the end and just just have, I just try and have one or two comments in my intro or somewhere else where I'm just acknowledging unbelievers in the room making a brief connection to them. Not going on a 10-minute rabbit trail, um, but just briefly connecting. Uh, I'm going to want to review my Christ connections, practical applications. I want to pray through it, and I want to rest in faith. I've only learned to do that in the last six months or so. Man, when is your sermon ever done? Well, it probably depends on your personality. For me, it's never, ever done. But that's a matter of faith as well, right? I've done the work. I've prepared. You know, when we first planted the church, I felt like every sermon had to be a home run. Um, but it just can't be. Um, if I'm feeling that way, it's because I feel like this church is going to get built on me and my preaching. Simon Murphy's preaching. No, um, it's got to be got to be built on God. So um, why don't we, I think we're due to finish in like five or ten minutes. Pete, you've, give me some comments, man. You've uh, You've done tons of work on preaching and. Incredibly. Incredible. Uh, awesome. yeah. Cool. Yeah. 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 Yeah.
cool. Thanks. Questions? Comment? Yes. Yep. I'm, thanks. I'm so glad. I actually wanted to begin. So in my in, in my intro, I said, man, peop, anyone who's handing the Bible, this is. So I know when I, when I began, I just kind of launched into Sunday preaching. So I didn't I didn't mean to do that, but I really appreciate no, your comments. I just, I didn't want Don't you worry about that. We wouldn't think that. <laughs> Don't you worry at all. Really, really great to have you. Yes. I don't have any questions about this because this, like you said, was really, really thorough. But what software do you use? Um, I mean, do you use Word? Do you use, is there like a, because I, I always think, well, can you, is there something like a, a, a notepad, a note card software where you can have point A, point B, flush those out? Shuffle them together and move things around. Because if you just use one long string, that would be difficult. Yeah, that's what I do. I just, I just use Word. I mean, I'm scribbling on pieces of paper. I use Logos Bible software. That's pretty helpful, but I'm a bit of a dinosaur. I actually prefer just physical commentaries. So I normally just buy physical commentaries. I, I prefer it from a resource point of view. So that's what I'm studying from. And then I just use words. Normally, when I do a series, I'll just have one word doc outline the series up front, have all my general notes on the letter or the book up front. And like I just, we ju I just finished Isaiah 39 like two weeks ago or so before, before I came. And um, so my Word doc was at like 88 pages or something by the time I got to Isaiah um, 39. So I decided I'm going to call that Isaiah part one and I'm going to start a new one. Because every time I open, I, I like scroll 80 pages to get to the bottom. But but you know the the notes that I showed you. That's that's basically the first part in that doc. It's like Isaiah thirty seven verse eighteen. That the, so the, that'll be the first part of my notes, and then after that, I'll begin to kind of write the sermon. Um, but those I, I actually thought in an earlier version I had included some just a summary of those points. So basically, I mean, what I'm doing in my in my prep in in my prep guide, I've just got like text, then context of the passage, context of the passage in scripture, exegetical outline, content. Just those headings. And then I know in my prep process, I'm going to fill those out. And then, so that's, I know those are the main questions that I'm asking. Once I've done that, now what, one of the things that helped us was for our Bibles, for our home group leaders, we basically just do a Bible study every week. So, and the preacher has to put that together. And, um, and yeah, just the discipline of like going through this process and then building that study is so helpful because it's disciplining me to like isolate. Yes. Uh, Grant. In terms of, No, it's good. I think, I mean, we have to begin with the text, otherwise any application is just going to be strange or weird and not give confidence. But we, we really do need to spend time doing that. I sometimes will kind of make my main point and then I'll be like, you know, so think about how does this apply to your career or your job or this or that. Or, But people say, like often I get feedback from you know, people that are close to me at church. They're like, look, that was fine. But it's just so much better when you, when you take an example and you kind of like case, you, you do like a case study in front of the church. You're like, hey, I'm like a single girl here. I'm like desperate to get married. Um, and I'm like racing through this. H how would I think about this? And like I actually apply the text to that situation and what I'm thinking, what I'm feeling. Those moments, it's like the lights come on for people. So it's a really, really good point. Um, it's true. I think, you know, for those of us who are in the text all the time, the connections are just so obvious. Like obviously trust God. And we kind of know what it looks like to trust God. But sometimes I have to be like, okay, the point is trust God, but this is what it looks like. You know, you've got to do this, stop doing this. Apply Jesus when your heart feels like this, you know, you, etc. So, yeah, yes, Pete. Yeah, so um, in one sense, expository preaching takes the burden off knowing what to preach next, but there's still a big challenge in like how fast or slow to go through a book. Like, yeah. you know, so yeah. I'm guessing a lot of people are thinking, wow, doing the whole of Isaiah, 66 chapters, 
How do you even do that? How do you decide? In small chunks. Yeah, oh. sure. But what, do you have any principles that you can share on how you decide whether to preach just two verses or ten or a whole chapter? So, yeah, I have no guidelines for that. Um, I think I think it's it's just a wide open question. Mark Dever, just down the road at Capitol Hill Baptist, I've got his commentaries. He, he he did one series where he preached one sermon on every book of the Bible. So it's pretty easy for Philemon, but for Isaiah, it's a it's a pretty awesome sermon, and he does preach an hour and ten minutes. But he he did. So I'm just saying you can you can do it you can do it any diff, any way. The point is this, I think both approaches are helpful actually. In the early days, I tried to mix it up a lot. So we did one series, which was on Second John, one chapter, for over five weeks, where we just like, this was like two verses at a time, and just drilled into all the details. And then I've preached Exodus over, we did it over like eight weeks, because I wrote a, like a devotional for the church where everyone was reading one chapter a day. So the whole church was reading it together. And then every Sunday, we basically tackled like seven chapters on a Sunday and just gave everyone an overview. So I think, I think it's good to, to, to just do both, you know, mix it up. You want people to, see, when, you, when you go in big chunks, people see, oh, there's like a whole story here that, you know, there's something bigger to see. And when you go through the weeds, they realize, man, every word is inspired and there's, there's life there. So it's different. With Isaiah, we haven't gone for one approach. So... Like I just did five sermons on chapter 36 to 39. That's like pretty slow. Um, but <laughs> I did get it to one of our other pastors to do one sermon on chapter 13 to like 20 or something. Just because, I mean, honestly, that, po- that portion of it, it's just like judgment on the nations. It's the same thing that's really getting said in many different ways. I'm like, you know what? We can sit here for like eight weeks and just hear the same thing. But I don't think that's going to be as helpful. So we spent like seven weeks doing chapters one to 12 or eight weeks or I don't know, nine weeks or something. And then we did like another only six or seven weeks for the next like 13 to 34 or something. So, and and I, I, part of that question probably depends on the church as well. Like, do people really need to hear this or, you know, so I try and mix it up a little bit though. So that it's not just one approach. Last, about a year and a half ago, a year and a half ago, someone, I had a few come a little bit, little bit of grumbles in the church. People saying, we kind of, Biting off like big chunks, can you slow down a little bit? And I realized, yeah, we'd gone through Genesis and a couple of other things quite quickly, and I needed to do some slow exposition. Yeah, Dan. Oh, sorry, sorry. So, two part question. Uh, apart from going through this process regularly, yeah. uh, what are you doing to continuously develop yourself as a preacher? Uh, and then the other part is um, church that's growing that rapidly. Yeah, so great, great questions. Um, I think you should try and listen to a diversity of preachers. You know, I think, I think it's Keller that said, you listen to one preacher, you're a clone. If you listen to two preachers, you're just confused. Um, so you really, you have to listen to quite a few actually. So that's helpful. Sometimes, like at the moment, I'm listening and reading commentaries by a guy called Ray Ortland Jr., um, and I've enjoyed his stuff on Isaiah. So I never listened to him before, but the last six months, I've just really enjoyed it. And it's just fresh and different. And he's just, he's just an amazing guy. So I've got some of the people I normally listen to, but dip into others. So that's helpful. Our, our pastoral staff does sermon reviews. So we do those. We used to do it on a Monday morning, nine o'clock in the morning, sermon review. I just preached three times, like 45 minutes a sermon, I'm exhausted on a Monday morning and now everyone's like, hey, you didn't like do this properly. You didn't get to Christ properly. Or you should have said this. Or why did you leave that out? Or don't do that again. So we've now moved that to a Wednesday um, where everyone's memory is like a little bit fuzzier. <laughs> and I'm feeling a little bit better, um, seriously. But that actually has been really helpful. So in our church, on a, we have our pastoral meeting on a Wednesday for the full-time guys. And we actually talk about our text for the following Sunday, so 10 days time. And because we do three services, we put out a service guide with the theme of the service, so all the worship leaders, we have different <laughs> worship leaders and different service leaders. So everyone is kind of singing from the same sheet. They know how they're gonna build their call to worship and confession, all those things from that theme and attribute. But they will talk about the text. So we, we're talking about it together and then we do it afterwards. For preaching training, uh, we did, we just went through a two year training process with about 15, we invited 20 guys to it. 
uh, by Simeon Trust in the U.S. Um, and it's like 20 hours of video. Um, and we basically did one a month where they'd watch like, or like 40 hours of video. They'd watch videos, do exercise, and then we'd talk together. Guys would preach 10-minute sermons. We met together once a month. The Simeon Trust guys, um, their stuff is absolutely brilliant from a textual point of view. Um, but honestly, they don't focus on like getting it across too much. It can be pretty dry. So if you are like, if you're trying to train people and how do you handle the word, how do you understand genres, it is very, very good. But we just kind of have to supplement that with some other material as well. So, I mean, they just, they are good resources. I actually believe they've put out a new version that's only seven hours um, that kind of just goes through the, so the, the one we did takes you through every genre of the Bible, spends a few sessions there. It's, I mean, the material is so helpful, but it's pretty long. Um, so for lay preachers, I'd probably do the shorter version. Mm. Thank you very much. Thank you. Yeah, thanks guys. <laughs>